0: tonight. All right, we are going to be recorded. All right, welcome, everyone. May twelfth, 2023. I've gotten into the habit of of putting a timestamp on the beginning of my classes. Uh, So uh, for those who are used to seeing me, I am in a different space. I'm in the living room because there's some sort of a sporting event happening that my wife and daughter Wish to watch on the television in the basement. So they've put me in the nice part of the house. So no complaints about that. You can see my bookshelf. I look like an official like MSNBC contributor here, you know, room raider will upgrade me. So, um, yeah, this is uh, a monthly class we've been doing for a long time. I would, I would like to figure out when it started. I'm not really sure when. But we are going to meditate for about thirty minutes, and I'm going to talk for a while, and then open it up for people to participate, ask questions, or make reflections. Um, and oh, did I want to un- announce anything? I don't have any big events coming up. Um, if you're on the East Coast and you're interested in a retreat. Um, I'm in uh, North Carolina in uh, over Labor Day weekend <laughs> uh, I'm also going to be at the Omega Institute uh, with the in um, August that's in upstate New York wonderful place um, but a lot online and I'm I'm actually um, putting together a Buddhism in the 12 Steps eight-week class that I'm going to offer shortly. Starting in mid-June, I haven't put all the uh, components together to advertise. I don't have a web page set up yet, but uh, that will be coming soon. So if you're on my mailing list, you'll uh, hear about it in the next couple of weeks. And if you're not, you can go to kevingriffin.net and get on my mailing list. (laughs) All right enough marketing, um, let's begin with some sitting. So, settling into a comfortable posture, um, if you're able, sitting upright. If uh, you need, you can always meditate lying down. And the Buddha taught four postures, sitting, standing, walking and lying down as mindfulness postures. You can close your eyes or just lower your gaze if you prefer to have your eyes open a little bit while you're sitting. And we turn our attention inward, feeling the body how it's situated, how it's being held. Feeling the body too, just as a field of energy, feeling the different sensations. And just connecting connecting with the breath and letting things gradually settle. And there's a sense and there can be a sense of just releasing, of seeing the ways that we are holding tension, stress in the body, seeing if we can use the breath to subtly let that settle, dissipate, as you arrive, And so you can start to connect more specifically with the sensations of breath as a concentration object, feeling the breath at the nostrils, touch sensation, or if that's not easy for you to just feel the movement of the belly rising and falling. No, we're not trying to sort of block out everything else. Somehow we have tunnel vision on the breath. It's more like we're feeling the breath in the body. As we sit, of a natural way. Minds mind may still be active, thoughts moving through. Sometimes you may be carried away with thoughts and lose in touch with the breath and the body altogether. In those moments when you realize you're lost in thought, you just acknowledge that and gently come back, quite natural. If something else pulls your attention away, like a sound or other strong sensation in the body, you can just turn your attention to that for a moment. And then return to the breath. We want to bring an attitude of friendliness to ourselves as we meditate. We're not competing, striving. We're trying to take care of ourselves. Though judgment isn't part of that. Rather, a sense of kindness, compassion, allowing, acceptance. In that way, whatever arises, whatever happening, whether we like it or not, is really just part of our experience. It's, it's okay. doesn't have to be fixed or changed. Mindfulness is just bringing a gentle awareness to our experience. Doesn't mean the experience is always what we want it to be. This is one of the real challenges of becoming comfortable with meditation not to be disturbed by the things that you'd prefer weren't happening. Or whether we call this equanimity or acceptance, it is this open and receptive attitude. One of the things we want to notice is the relationship between thoughts and feelings, noticing how we get set off and then noticing the pleasant feeling of letting go when we come back to the breath and the body, starting to make these connections very explicitly and experientially. This is what the Buddha taught. How suffering arises, how it ends. When the mind is grasping after something or pushing something away, creates an agitation. When we let that go, we release the agitation as well. And we see for ourselves the truth of this teaching and the value of letting go. One aspect of our practice is to track our energy. So typically, as we settle, we can become more drowsy. So to maybe sit up straighter, open the eyes, take a deep breath or two as that energy goes down a bit. At other times, the opposite can happen. As we sit, we become more restless, antsy. We have to work at just letting go, making our experience a little more spacious. Restlessness is often a a feeling of claustrophobia, just being trapped. Sort of just think of the mind as being more vast, not just a small pinpoint of mind. These are just a couple of the ways that our experience changes over the course of a period of meditation. We don't just arrive at some still point and sit in that. Our practice requires learning to navigate, kind of into it, the uh, skillful way of working with different energies and feelings. I'd get caught in a certain stream of thoughts and have to step out of that, sea. oh, I'm really lost in that, let me just take a breath, oh, can I feel how that feels in my heart? these different dimensions of experience that reveal themselves as we are simply sitting, simply being still, mind and body always moving, changing, seeing if we can Find a place of balance from which we watch all this. See if it can all be okay. All right. We made it. <laughs> uh, nice to get in a little sitting. Um you know, uh, I mentioned that I'm uh you know, putting in a working on a a course and and um and one of the things that came up as i was i was thinking about that was um you know what what makes the dharma what does the dharma uniquely bring to recovery and then also what does recovery bring uniquely to the dharma i'm not sure i can fully answer those questions but Certainly, um, you know there's a there's a connection between the four noble truths and and recovery in that the key connection being the second truth that suffering is caused by craving and clinging in both, you know, and all the all the forms that takes. Uh, the, the Buddha doesn't, when he introduces that idea, doesn't really cover really the spectrum, but I think it's implied that, you know, certainly like addictive craving, right? Um, is, I mean, it's so clearly causes suffering. We, we all know that. Um, but But then all these subtle ways. So this like expands. Um, our understanding then of recovery. Because when we come into recovery, we deal with the initial sort of crisis of craving, right? The addictive craving, the really destructive one. But even when we let go of that, you know, we start to uncover the layers underneath that. And that, I think, you know, gives people addicts in recovery a kind of unique perspective on the Dharma because we we are particularly by definition interested in the problem of craving you know it's it's we're very sensitive to that we've we've had to really struggle with it and hopefully we've had you know some, Release around that. I mean, classically, I know it doesn't happen for everybody, but for many people, you know, there is a letting go that happens, right? That that allows us to really fully come into recovery and and get on this path and stay on this path. Stay sober, stay clean, and, or whatever the addiction is. once we've done that then i think we're we're somewhat attuned to oh the subtler things that come up right now it's another uh, you know if you're if for you it was alcohol then maybe now it's food or there's something around your sexuality or your sexual behavior or um you know your issues of control with people right or fear about money you know and and uh you know, it's why many of us like belong to multiple programs because <laughs> we start to see, oh, wait, there's their craving is operating in all these ways in our lives, and uh, <laughs> so we're we become attuned to it, and then mindfulness itself, this practice of intentionally paying close attention to our mental, physical, and emotional experience attunes us even more so. So when we bring the dharma, I'm taking my cough drop here, my traditional, these days I seem to have a scratchy throat. But as we, if we really engage in a dharma practice, not just, oh, there's the Four Noble Truths, isn't that interesting, but we actually start to sit with our experience then we become even more attuned to not just that we're sensitive to addiction because we're in recovery, but because we're sitting in stillness and learning to breathe and just feel the body and the mental states and the emotional states on these more and more subtle levels. Then we start to see... Oh, it's not just these big forms of craving, like, oh, I need a new car or I need a new relationship. It's the subtle moment by moment ones that are trying to control, trying to fix, trying to get rid of, trying to grab onto these subtler and subtler experiences. You know, I find it really interesting. Although somewhat tedious, at a certain point, to like see how my mind just keeps generating stuff, you know, like if I'm gonna travel somewhere, like I'm going to Alaska next week, <laughs> <huh>? <laughs> I can spend weeks beforehand packing my suitcase, like literally, like in my mind, I'm like oh. I better check what's the weather going to be next week in Anchorage, you know? Okay. All right. Well, you know, I'll take this sweater and that. Maybe I better take some smart wool. But it, what if it warms up? Well, I want to be, you know, it's like you're supposed to be meditating, right? This is what I'm talking about doing this when I'm meditating, not just like the rest of the time, but actually when I meditate, it's like, you're supposed to know how to meditate. I thought you'd be like you're a meditation teacher and you're spending your time packing your suitcase. Lee Brasington, who's been one of my teachers, does this around the refrigerator, cleaning out your refrigerator, right? But, it, it, you know, it's just to see like, oh, what are my mental habits? And of course, you know, it's not, the, it's not about the suitcase, right? It's about the fear the fear underneath, like, oh, what if I don't have the right clothing, <laughs> right? And what does that mean, right? Oh, it could be physical discomfort, or it could be like, oh, you're you're giving a public talk, and, you know, people will be looking at you, and what are they So, right, like, all this stuff gets created in our minds. So, as we start to become more and more attuned, I mean, that's just one example I could give you others, but you know, we become more attuned. We start to see these places where we cling, where there's fear, where there's, uh, you know, grasping, where there's desire, where there's resentment. And the thing about mindfulness is that not only does it show you these things, but it shows you the inherent discomfort within them. So the Buddha calls this dukkha. We typically translate this as suffering or sometimes unsatisfactoriness but those words don't capture the the layers in this, and this some of sometimes it's you know the it's a it's a subtle agitation or discomfort it, it's and that you might not be aware of unless you are meditating if you're not mindful there's a lot you miss. <laughs> you know so you start to attune to those and you know one of the ironies is like oh i'm meditating in order to feel more comfortable in my life in a way i mean i want it's like there's lots of reasons to meditate but it's like part of it is always like i want to be more relaxed and more peaceful and at first it can almost like be the opposite This is another way that it kind of parallels recovery, right? Because when you first get sober or clean, and you're like, oh, I really need to stop this addiction. I'll be so much happier. And then you stop and you're like, whoa, you're crawling, you know, climbing the walls. Your skin is crawling. You're like, ah. But with meditation, it's like we start to see these levels of dukkha and these levels of of clinging. And you can, you can start, people often get very judgmental of themselves when they start to meditate a lot. You know, you go on a retreat, especially, you start to see all these judgments and these, you know, these aspects of yourself that you don't necessarily love. So we have to then deal with this. And, and this is where we have to be very careful that we don't turn meditation into this self-improvement project in which I need to be better than I am. I need to fix myself, you know, or meditation needs to fix me, or the Buddha needs to fix me, or my teacher needs to fix me. Because what you're doing then is setting up this inherent conflict between now as you are and this imagined way you think you should be and you know you never catch up with that you'll never get there it's always going to be this separation because it's you know the the goalposts will keep moving you know and so the key then is for us to stop that project and say I'm okay, just as I am. I'm perfect, just as I am. And I could be improved. (laughs) And we can improve on that perfection. You know, that there's some line, like, I'm not remembering what teacher says that, but there, you know. And so, you know, there's, you know, the paradox, right? One of the paradoxes, because Dharma practice is filled with these paradoxes. To be able to just really accept it's really okay that i have these cravings that i'm not perfect uh, you know that there's dukkha you know that i get angry you know all of that it's it's okay and i'd like to let go of those cravings and that anger and i'm going to continue to to work at that this this you know, holding these two, but we see how, you know, if we watch this process, we see how this setting up of a model of how meditation is supposed to be or how we're supposed to be. Oh, I'm a Buddhist now. So, you know, I'm not supposed to ever get angry or I'm not supposed to be jealous of people. You know, you set that up and it's just, you know, a, a formula for suffering. And so to be able to, just, you know, let go, you know, to be able to say it's really okay. And that, and that for me, that was when my meditation became comfortable. <laughs> when I started to, when I stopped doing that, when I stopped thinking like I need to get somewhere in my meditation, you know, and I, it needs to be a certain way. And of course, the irony then is that when you let go of that, that's when you actually get it right. The the it's much more peaceful and comfortable. So I think that you know this is this is kind of a unique thing that the Dharma brings to recovery. That it helps us to peel away these multiple layers and actually approach something like serenity, which as we know is sort of like one of the things that's promised in the 12-step world particularly. but I you know I find people often it, it often evades people and largely because they don't take on that 11 step challenge of of practicing meditation. But I, I also think that a recovery process then can bring something unique to the Dharma, to to a dharma practice. And, and we can see how that works. It's kind of the same thing I'm talking about. This attunement to craving, you know, in In ordinary Buddhist circles, if I dare say, I'll sort of set up a straw man, (laughs) Uh, you know, people talk about suffering and craving and letting go. And it's in some ways presented as theoretical. I mean, it's presented as, oh, yeah, this is the way things are. But... You know, I don't hear people really talking that much about actual suffering, you know, about actual clinging, about actual craving. It's more, you know, in these sort of theoretical and abstract ways. And when someone has been through the challenges of addiction and recovery, this is far from abstract it's very real so that we understand something about the dharma that people who haven't suffered in this level uh, don't necessarily understand so um i had planned to read something (laughs) but then i started talking sometimes this happens to me but I think I'm still going to go back and and read this a little bit, and then, and then maybe open it up a little for you guys. So this is from my my so-called workbook. I call the so-called workbook because it it doesn't have like empty pages where you can write stuff in it. Um. But it's meant to um, give you sort of exercises and practices and things to um, to work through the 12 steps using Dharma and meditation and mindfulness. It's called the Buddhism and the 12 steps workbook in case you're interested in it. I'm reading on page 25 a section called the Way of mindfulness and recovery and this is before I get into the actual steps. What is mindfulness? As this practice and Buddhist teachings have attracted more and more attention, the simple definitions once offered have been challenged by Buddhist scholars and Dharma teachers, creating a bit of confusion about something that seems quite simple, the application of our attention to our mental and physical experience moment by moment. I'm not qualified to enter into an academic debate on the topic, so I will give you my sense of the meaning of the word and then encourage you to explore other sources if you'd like to understand more. Mindfulness starts with being present, being aware of what we are experiencing through our five physical senses and what's happening in our mind. Our natural tendency is to get caught up worrying about or planning the future or remembering the past. The first thing we try to do with mindfulness is notice these tendencies and start to train ourselves to bring our attention back to what is happening right now. This alone is a huge task because of our deep conditioning. Planning the future based on our experiences in the past is a survival strategy developed eons ago by our ancestors. Our capacity to do this is what sets us apart from other living things, and so our instincts resist any effort to act otherwise. Nonetheless, these habits take us away from a direct experience of life and obscure a whole range of truths, from the psychological conditioning that drives our behavior to the elemental realities that Buddhists call the Dharma, truth, or natural law. With mindfulness, we not only observe what's happening in the body and mind, but how we react to things, how a sound triggers a thought, and a thought triggers an emotion, and an emotion triggers a physical response. We begin to see the bigger picture, the process by which we construct our understanding of our world and who we are. This deconstruction of our experience is vitally important for addicts in or trying to get into recovery because it allows them to see how their addiction works and that there is a way out, that it's not inevitable or unstoppable. The process by which we become addicted is a mind-body process that can be reversed, and awareness is the first stepping stone in that process that's why step 1 of the 12 steps starts with the word we, words we admitted because that admission is the bringing into our awareness the truth of our condition until we are aware of our condition until we come out of denial no recovery is possible step 1 is essentially an act of mindfulness a clear seeing you know, so that's kind of one of my arguments when I when I start this process of trying to connect Buddhism and recovery is that to to begin we have to have clarity when we're in denial we're in denial of reality're in denial of the truth so we're in denial of the Dharma and mindfulness is, by definition, seeing the truth, whether it's just seeing the truth of my breath coming in and out, or what I'm feeling, or seeing the truth of impermanence, or seeing the truth of you know, not self or the truth of suffering. So it's it, so and then the other connection here. We admitted we were powerless over alcohol, is what it says in the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, that our lives have become unmanageable. It's speaking to the truth of suffering, right? The first noble truth. And again, this is something that people in general, and addicts in particular, try not to look at. Try not to look at suffering. We don't want to see it. And yet... Not looking at it doesn't make it go away. And it doesn't give us any opportunity to deal with it. If we pretend something's not there that is there, then that thing is still operating. You know, pretending you're not an addict does not solve the problem. So I'll I'll read the next section because this kind of relates to where I'm going with that. One of the things that always struck me as unique about the Buddhist teachings is that the Buddha started out by talking about the difficulties in life, the suffering. This doesn't seem like the best marketing technique. If you want to sell a product, you shouldn't start out by being such a downer. And Maybe that's one reason Buddhism seems to take hold slowly in a culture. It doesn't start out by promising paradise. The practice of mindfulness then has a role in building from this recognition of suffering. The Buddha asks us to sit down, literally, and start to watch our experience unfold. If you sit still for a while, what you'll discover is that your mind is restless and filled with plans and memories that are agitating. Your body doesn't want to sit still and often will begin to hurt or at least get itchy or tense. You start to fall asleep when you're trying to pay attention to the breath. Sitting still becomes boring and tedious, not to mention frustrating as you try to follow the meditation instructions, but fail repeatedly. So the first effect of mindfulness is to see the truth of the first noble truth. The Buddha was right. It's hard to be a human being. If we keep watching carefully, tracking the process moment by moment, as we notice the mind wandering and gently come back to the breath, we see that when we let go of our obsessive thinking, we get moments of relief. Thus, we see the truth of the second and third noble truths. Our discomfort is caused by our clinging and ends when we stop clinging. We also see, as step one says, that we are powerless. In this case, over the arising of thoughts, feelings, and sense experiences. Not that we can't do anything about them, but that just as with our addiction, they're going to keep coming up, and if we are not going to suffer as they arise, we are going to have to change our relationship to them. When an addict sees this meditative process clearly, and usually it helps if a teacher or guide clarifies what's happening the logic of letting go becomes indisputable. We see in microcosm the process of addiction and recovery. Kind of what I've been talking about. So, yeah, um, I just find this, this connection so interesting. And it, and it you know it's something that when i when i started to see this it f- was something that seemed to keep unspooling itself <laughs> that you know this connection between addiction and the four noble truths particularly like oh yes it it kind of it it operates on all these levels you know that There's the suffering, there's the clinging, there's the letting go. You know, oh, there it is. And then there's this path, right? The Eightfold Path that helps us to develop the capacity to let go. And and famously, I believe it's Ajahn Chah says, if you let go a little, you'll have a little freedom. If you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of freedom. If you have let go completely, you'll have complete freedom. And this is what the Dharma is pointing to. And I know when people start on their path of recovery, it feels like, it can feel like a lot of freedom. But again, the longer we stay in that process, we see, oh, there's more letting go, there's more letting go. And to, you know what the what Buddhism offers is this ultimate letting go, you know, which is really a let about letting go of of creating ego and self, trying to feed that part of yourself. But perhaps that's for another day. <laughs> So I'd like to, I thank you for your attention. And I'd like to just open it up and see if there are any comments or questions or any any directions that people would like to to go with this tonight. So thank you. So metta is the term for loving kindness. So just settling back again for a moment, taking a breath. And just feeling yourself here right now, what are you feeling? What are you sensing? And hopefully there's a a lightness or a joy or a relief from being together and reflecting on dharma. Just some appreciation for yourself, for showing up and taking care of yourself. So this act of being here is an act of love toward yourself. It's an act of love toward the community. So letting yourself feel that, feel the care you have for yourself that brought you here. And realizing that everyone here brought that same care for themselves. Letting your heart connect with that. With the love we all have for ourselves and that we have for each other. And then having a sense, as the Buddha says, of radiating kindness over the entire world. So letting that love in your heart spread out out to your neighbors and your family and your friends out across the lands and the oceans. all the beings on this planet that seek happiness and safety, may they all be held with love. May all beings on earth be happy, peaceful and safe. May all beings everywhere be free from suffering. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Monique, for hosting. Thanks to Spirit Rock. And uh, very nice to see everyone. I'll be on my Zoom on Tuesday. And then somebody is going to have to teach for me next Friday when I'm in Alaska. Debbie? (laughs) Are you free next Friday? We can talk. Okay, look at your calendar. All right, everybody. You can, if you want to unmute and say goodnight, you are free to do that. Welcome to do that. Thank you, Kevin. Thank, thank you, Monique. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Bye, everyone. Thank you. I will appreciate you. And congratulations. You. Right, you guys, thanks. Night, thank Mike. Bye, everybody. Oh, bye-bye. <laughs> Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks, Monique. Bye-bye. Thank you, Kevin. Okay. hi everyone. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.